This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. When we look, consider our perceptual systems and our action systems in relation to those of other animals, I think we see enormous similarity, so much similarity that animal models have told us a great deal about how it is that we perceive and act in the ways that we do. But when we turn to our cognitive systems, it seems like there's this huge chasm between us and all of the other animals. Every animal has to deal with physical objects, but only we surround ourselves with artifacts. There may not be a single natural object in this room, except for the people uh, who are here. Uh, other animals have to, all animals have to find food, but only we develop cuisines of the wonderful sorts uh, you have in California. And of course, the list goes on. And this raises the question, what propels these different And that question has proved extremely difficult to answer because for every one of these things that marks us as a species, you can find individual cases where other animals will use tools uh, or will prepare food in some interesting way. uh, Or even um, if they're uh, Dr. Matsuzawa's uh, chimpanzees, read numbers better than uh, we do. But still, I think what seems really special about us is the way that we systematically and flexibly and prolifically develop new systems of concepts, whole systems of concepts. So the question um, I want to raise is what propels these differences? And uh, I should put in a disclaimer at the very beginning. I'm not going to answer this question. What I want to argue, though, is that the question's answerable. It's answerable with the techniques that we currently have. And to illustrate that argument, I want to contrast two different answers uh, to this question. So the first answer, which I think was articulated most uh, compellingly by Jason just uh, to talk ago, what distinguishes us is our uh, social minds, our abilities to read each other's minds, and through these read my, uh, mind-reading activities, to develop ways of cooperating and competing with one another, of exchanging goods and information, of teaching and learning uh, from one another. I think this answer has a good chance of being correct. But I want to contrast it with a different answer that I'm going to argue for today. And that fundamentally, what makes us special uh, is not anything that's specific to the social domain. Rather, it's our general combinatorial capacity uh, that we can apply to any domain to carry cognition far beyond the bounds uh, that it reaches in uh, other animals. So more specifically, what I'll suggest is that like our perceptual systems, we have basic cognitive systems, basic systems for making sense of abstract properties of the world that begin in a state that's largely the same as the cognitive systems of uh, other animals. But we alone, over the course of cognitive development, come to combine the products of these systems, the properties of the world that these systems serve to represent, flexibly and productively. And through these combinations, we create new systems of knowledge. Now, this is a view that's been suggested, I think, by research very far from uh, social cognition, research in mathematics cognition, uh, and it's come from studies where people have tested the numerical and geometrical capacities of infants and other animals, and have found evidence, perhaps surprisingly, for capacities that exist at the beginning of human life that remain present and functional in us throughout our lives, 
and that we draw on when we perform symbolic mathematics or reason about uh, Euclidean geometry. But nevertheless, when we look at these capacities in infants, they look strikingly limited. We see two distinct systems for reasoning about small numbers exactly and large numbers approximately, two distinct systems for reasoning about the shape of the layouts that we navigate through versus reasoning about the shapes of objects that we recognize. These systems are uh, elicited under different conditions. They make available different kinds of numerical or geometrical information. And most deeply, they answer different questions about the world. Yet despite their differences, somehow over the course of childhood, children productively combine their two number systems to learn counting and arrive at the set of natural number concepts that will allow them to go to school and learn arithmetic. And somewhat later, they productively combine their two systems of geometry to arrive at the basic intuitions about points, lines, and figures on the Euclidean plane. And it looks like these developments happen hand-in-hand with the development of important symbol systems, especially natural language, uh, but also uh, spatial symbols of various kinds. So can an account like this be developed to explain our uniquely human social cognitive capacities. Well, here's my stab uh, at an attempt to do this. I think there may be two systems by which infants understand other people. One is a system for representing people as agents who act on the world and cause changes in it. And the other is a system for representing social beings who engage with other social beings and share experiences with them. Uh, Like the core uh, number and geometry systems, these systems uh, serve to answer different questions uh, and do so, I think, by drawing on different notions of mental states as intentional relations to the world in one case and as shared uh, phenomenal experiences in the other. I hypothesize that neither of these systems is unique to humans. uh, They both evolved long before our species did and uh, will be found to be shared by other animals, and that they're largely separate from each other, both for human infants and for other animals, except in the many dramatic cases where animals learn smart ways of putting together piecemeal representations from these different uh, systems. What I think distinguishes us is that we come to combine these systems flexibly and productively uh, to create across the board uh, a family of notions of mental states as both intentional and phenomenal, mental states that can take other mental states as their objects and therefore potentially infinite in range. And I want to end just by suggesting that this new conception may uh, arise with and depend on the acquisition of language and that it may account for the slow development of uh, mental state reasoning. So let me quickly introduce you to these systems as they would appear from uh, current research, that from an early age, three months in those gorgeous um, mitten studies, infants represent actions of reaching for objects as directed to their goal objects. They also represent actors as causing changes in the motions of objects. These are, these are, this is a study by Rebecca Sachs, uh, where she first introduced kids to an inanimate beanbag and then let them see events in which the beanbag flew onto a stage. And the question was, what made that beanbag go? And to get at what infants thought about this, she subsequently showed them a hand that appeared either on the side that the beanbag came from or the other side. And they reacted differentially to those two events in a way suggesting that they expected that uh, it was a person with a hand that had set that uh, beanbag into motion. 
She and others have also shown that infants represent actions as uh, constrained by barriers and as efficient. So if a barrier is taken away, they expect a direct action, a a direct reach for an object uh, in its absence. And finally, research suggests that infants represent actions as uh, constrained by or dependent on visual access. So if an infant is presented uh, with a person and two objects under conditions in which the person had an opportunity to see both of those objects, then the infant represents that person's action of reaching for one or the other object as dependent on both objects. But if in the same physical situation, the person only had a chance to see one of those two objects, the infant's prediction about the person's action is different. Now, I think in each of these cases, uh, animals have not systematically been tested in all these cases, but where they have been, they've been found to have the same uh, abilities. So newly hatched and controlled reared chicks have shown the first three uh, abilities that I laid out there, and other animals have shown this sensitivity to uh, visual access, as was talked about earlier today. But what we learned about core systems of mathematics is that they're limited, and we can ask, is that true uh, for core systems of social cognition as well? And here's one limit uh, that I think strikingly distinguishes the infant system of agent representation from our own. First of all, as I said, rather early on, infants take account of visual access in predicting what someone will do. But until the ridiculously old age of 14 months, they don't take account of where someone is looking. So if a person is presented with two objects that are visually accessible, turns to look at one of them, they predict equally that the person will reach for that object and reach for the other object. Relatedly, between the ages of 5 and 14 months, there's a very slow development of infant's ability to track a person's gaze to an object. And until 10 months of age, it seems like what they're tracking is not what the eyes are doing, because if a person closes their eyes and turns their head toward an object, they'll track it just as well. What's more, uh, infants take reaching to be goal-directed as early as 5 months of age. They don't take the act of looking uh, at an object to be directed to that object by the same measures until uh, 12 months of age. So it seems as if infants don't understand that agents see objects. But you might ask, is it just that infants are insensitive to the eyes? They just don't care about the eyes in general. That is emphatically not the case. Because even a newborn infant responds differently to a photograph face of someone who is looking at them versus looking away. What's more, newborn and three-month-old infants, if they're shown someone who first looks at them, then turns to look to the side, and then disappears, and an object either appears on the side they were looking at or the other side, they look faster to the side where the ob- when the object appears on the side where the person was looking. Now, interestingly, infants only show this pattern if they're presented with a face, and if the face starts by looking straight at them. Okay? This depends on uh, initial gaze. So does infants' uh, patterns of imitation of other people. Uh, the famous studies of Andy Meltzoff showing that um, if he performs a facial gesture, infants will, new, uh, as young as newborns, will tend to reproduce it. Other studies have shown that infants uh, from birth will tend to reproduce other people's vocalizations as best they can and their emotional expressions. But interestingly, in all these cases, this, kind, this pattern of imitation is only shown when the person starts by looking at them with direct gaze. So gaze clearly matters for infants, and the question is how. 
Uh, before I get to that question, let me mention that gaze matters for other animals, too. In all of these respects, these early abilities that we see in human infants are seen also in other animals. Uh, so infant monkeys distinguish a face that's looking at them versus looking away. So do chicks. Adult monkeys show the attentional pattern when, it, when the face looks to the side. They look faster to the object. And although uh, Tetsuro told us uh, that inf infant chimpanzees don't ape, uh, sorry, adult chimpanzees don't ape, by which he means they don't reproduce other animals' actions on objects, neither do young infants, but chimpanzees, like human newborns, do imitate facial gestures, uh, and uh, his lab showed that beautifully. So do infant monkeys. And the question is why? Here's my suggestion. Uh, what we are seeing in these cases is the work of a different system, not for identifying agents who are going to make changes in the world, but social beings with whom one can enter states of engagement. For an infant, social beings may signal their engagement by direct gaze, by engagement in common actions, and when they're engaged with each other, social beings may share states of attention and possibly also states of emotion. Not states relating them intentionally to outside external objects, but states that directly relate one social being to another. So this is the hypothesis. Um, do infants have a system for representing social engagement? And with Lindsay Powell, uh, a grad student and then postdoc uh, at Harvard, I attempted to address this question by pursuing a possible implication of it. Uh, we know that infants are very limited in their behavior early on, but they're able to see the world reasonably well. So infancy seems like a good time to start to learn to navigate the social landscape. So we asked whether young infants, four-month-olds in our studies, uh, would use information from other people's patterns of behavioral indicators of social engagement to make predictions about who would uh, interact with whom. So here's the first study that we did. We presented infants. In all these studies, we used simple cartoon characters so we could get good control over the stimuli and avoid the possibility of uh, earlier learning about specific kinds of social patterns. So we have uh, two blue guys who jump and two red guys who slide, and a purple guy who responds to each of the other guys, but only by engaging in one action. For half the infants, he jumps. For the other half, he slides. And then infants see the purple guy approaching each of the other two groups and dancing with them. And the question is, who will the, the person approach? We uh, record their looking time and f find a reliable difference in the direction of longer looking when the person approaches the people that he imitated, the people with whom the infant sees him as being in a state of social engagement. Uh, we uh, also uh, showed the same thing uh, in studies where what the uh, imitative action wasn't a motion, it was a sound. Uh, otherwise, the structure was the same and the effects uh, were the same. It looks like infants expect copiers to engage socially uh, with uh, the social beings that, it, that they copy. We also tested the reverse inference. Do infants expect that if they've seen people engaging socially, do they expect that they'll imitate each other's uh, actions? To get at this, we went to slightly older infants and a more complicated paradigm. Now there are six characters in two groups. Each of the two groups dances with each other separately from the other group to set up that there's two social groups here. And then the top four characters, 
in each group circle around one box. And what distinguishes the two groups is which box they circle around. For half the infants, everybody circles around the nearer box. For the other half, the farther box. But always there's one box that's specific to each of the two groups. And then it's the test time. And the two guys who are at the bottom each in turn go to the center of the display and circle around the same box. So one guy is circling around the box that his group members circled around. The other guy is not. And once again, at two ages with two slightly different methods, we see evidence of infants expecting the social engagement to go with uh, imitation. Uh, further studies that Powell did showed that the, uh, these expectations are specific to social beings. Infants don't show them when they're shown groups of inanimate objects with similar properties that move together. Interestingly, they also don't show them when they're shown uh, agents who move independently, undergoing the same kinds of motion as in the social conditions, but who aren't grouped together. They have similar properties, but they're not grouped together. In those cases, no consistent um, expectations. So it looks like infants are expecting engaged social beings to copy their own group. Now, if this is a system like the other systems we find in infants, it should have some puzzling limits. And we found a few interesting limits. I think I have time to tell you just one of them. I've shown you evidence that infants expect copiers to affiliate with their targets. If one guy acts and another guy copies him, they expect the copier to approach the target. But if you simply reverse the order of these events, you see that infants do not expect targets to approach their copiers. So in this event, the purple guy acts first, and then either the blue guys copy him or the red guys copy him, and then he approaches either the blue or the red guys. Now, an adult might expect that social relationships are symmetrical and reciprocal, uh, and uh, you, should, you should get these effects in both directions. The infants don't show that. And the limit is kind of striking because infants actually like other people who imitate them, but they don't seem to attribute that uh, uh, imitation with that kind of uh, causal effect. I think these studies suggest that infants see imitation of, as a sign of social motives in an imitator, but not as a cause of social motives in the target. So those are the only experiments I want to uh, uh, describe. Let me briefly point out uh, some of what I think uh, uh, they suggest. First, they suggest that infant social understanding is distinct from their understanding of agents and their instrumental actions. Distinct in one way that I just described, infants endow agents with powers to cause changes in the world, but they don't seem to endow social beings with powers to cause changes in other social beings. They also expect social beings but not agents to copy one another's actions. Research from other laboratories shows that infants like others who imitate their social gestures, but not others who imitate their actions on inanimate objects, at least not until about 14 months of age, and I started with the observation that infants are sensitive to gaze in social contexts, but not in the context of acting on objects. So what I want to propose is that there may be two systems of social cognition at work in us, starting from the beginning of life. One focusing on agents who act and intend, the other focusing on social beings who engage uh, and emote. And neither of these systems, I think, as far as they've been tested and they haven't been completely tested, is unique to humans. Now, where do infants go from here? 
Starting at about nine to 12 months of age, we see some abrupt changes in infant social behavior. Uh, as many people have pointed out, they start sharing attention with other people to objects. They start pointing at objects and understand other people's pointing. They start understanding the act of giving an object as a social action, a friendly thing uh, uh, for someone to do. They start understanding helping and uh, cooperation. And I think in general, what's going on in these cases is that social gestures are beginning to serve instrumental ends, and instrumental actions are beginning to have social meaning. And I gave some examples of that, but I'm out of time, so let me just end by asking, what could be causing these changes? Well, here's an observation. The rapid changes uh, coincide in time with the onset of language. We now know that much earlier, by about six months of age, infants are starting to learn individual words, starting to learn to recognize individual words, typically names for objects and social terms like hi and bye-bye. But at the end of the first year, they're, combi- they're understanding when other people combine them together into uh, sentences. And I think that this new understanding of people as being at one and the same time agents who represent the world of objects and social beings who share experience with each other may emerge as infants come to see speech access having the, both these social and object-directed uh, properties. If that's right, then this combinatorial system also could explain why later social development looks so crashingly slow. And for this, the Sally Ann task, where should Sally look for her toy? Well, first of all, notice that Sally and Anne are there together and they're imitating each other. They've both got their hands raised. There's every reason to think that they're social partners. Now, if the child views Sally purely as an agent, then visual access says she should look in her basket. If she views her as a social being engaged with Anne, the social system says she should do what Anne does. Anne went to the box with the object. Sally should go to the box for the object. But if, she, if you see Sally as a social agent who shares attention to other social agents so as to gain accurate information about the world, then they should predict that they'll go where the object actually is. Two of these three possibilities give the wrong answer in the false belief task. In general, I think that once children have this productive system of mental state concepts, They have multiple ways of construing the states of other people, as we do as adults. And this creates an enormous problem for child learners and also actually for adult reasoners. So I am done. What makes us different? I don't know. Uh, The hypothesis, it's not our distinctive ways of innately given distinctive ways of construing the social world. Instead, it's something about the distinctive way in which we create new systems of concepts from older ones. And this may account both for the slowness of our cognitive development and for the chasm that separates us uh, from other animals. But more than I care about this point, I care about the effort that could that could lead us to come to know whether this story or a different story is right. That could lead us to come to know what it is about us today that distinguishes us from other animals today and accounts for our unique intelligence. And I, I hope I've suggested at least one way of going about this by looking at these creatures who are so radically different from us in everything that they know and yet so radically like us in everything that they are. Um, but understanding them in terms, in the context of four different comparative enterprises, comparisons across animals comparisons over human development, asking what's constant and what changes, comparisons across people living in different circumstances or navigating the world with different cognitive capacities, and especially comparisons across levels of analysis. Thank you.
So one of the central challenges across the life sciences, but certainly within anthropogeny, is the question of how this scrawny animal has become, become the undisputed master of the planet. <laughs> we're hardly much to look at in our... We're not very physically imposing. We're not particularly swift or strong. Um, we don't have sophisticated onboard weaponry like talons or claws or fangs or poison. And we, don't, we haven't evolved fancy tricks to evade our predators like camouflage or flight. But of course, there is one very special physical adaptation that marks us as a species, and that's the three pounds of flesh that sits between your ears, the human brain. Now, the central challenge in trying to understand how the human brain has made us special is that unlike wings and talons and poisons, the brain itself doesn't interact much with the world around it. In fact, things have, it's pretty safe to say that things have gone horribly wrong for you if your brain is in direct contact with, with the environment. <laughs> Instead, it's the quality of mind that the brain endows us with that changes the way in which we interact with the environment around us that surely says much about what makes us unique as a species. Over the past 15 to 20 years, there's been a resurgence or renaissance among many different branches of science, ranging from biology to anthropology to psychology, that's begun to look at one particular way in which the human brain changes the way we interact with the environment. And in particular, one, one kind of object out there that, seems to be, um, that, this, that the human brain seems to, to treat in a particularly special way that's very different than our closest uh, primate cousins. And that is specifically the way in which we interact with other conspecifics, other humans. So unlike most other animals, humans are very much willing to subvert our own immediate desires for the, we- the, the longer-term welfare of those around us. Um, we engage in very special forms of communication that are both symbolic and recursive. Our predilections for teaching lead to um, the development of uh, long-term culture. I would argue that underlying many of these different and varied social abilities is a fundamental ability that humans have uh, evolved, which is the ability to understand what's going on inside the mind of another person. So unlike what you might expect from reading science fiction, we don't need special headgear or mutations to understand the goings-on of other minds. In fact, we very readily traffic in the mental states of those around us. When asked to explain why it is that someone is doing something or to make sense of another person, we first avail ourselves not of the actual physical movements of that person, but much more readily of the invisible mental states uh, and goings-on of that person's uh, mind. What that person might be thinking or feeling, what that person's goals are, what his hopes, desires, or personality traits might be. So the question that many of us um, throughout developmental psychology, uh, within neuroscience, um, even in anthropology and biology have been interested in is how exactly humans are pulling off this feat of mind reading. How it is, what what gives rise to our uh, abilities to mentalize or to engage in theory of mind. I think as one central starting point, we want to ask the question of whether these skills, the skills I bring to bear when I'm interacting with you, the skills that I bring to bear when I try to make sense of what's happening inside your head, whether those are piggybacking or somehow isomorphic with the other kinds of things that I do in my everyday life. So I think um, I particularly like this quote from Sarah Jane Blakemore, who asks very succinctly, Whether general cognitive processes, those that are involved broadly in perception, in language, in memory, attention, whether those are sufficient to explain social competence, 
or whether we have to do something quite unparsimonious, something that would make Occam turn over in his grave, and instead posit that there might be specific processes that are special to social interaction. And this has been the core mission of many people's um, research, and I'm going to um, talk about a couple of the ways in which um, people have attempted to get at this. One of, in my mind, one of the most fruitful ways of addressing this question of whether what we bring to the table when we interact with others, whether that's the same or different than when, what we bring to the table when we interact with any other objects and entities out there. Um, one fruitful approach to that has been to look at the underlying brain mechanisms that give rise to our abilities in the social world. Before I, before I say much about why I think brain imaging is, has been useful for this, um, let me just give you um, an analogy from the world of evolutionary biology. So biologists, some, some biologists, have been quite concerned with trying to understand and uh, understand the relationship among various different animals. And until fairly recently, what they had to go on, starting from you know, Darwin on, was simply the morph- what it is they could observe about those animals in terms of their morphological characteristics, what their bodies look like, and what kinds of behavior they engaged in. More recently, biologists have been able to avail themselves of a, a totally different kind of technique that allows them to look at the underlying physical substrate, substrates that give rise to those morphologies and those behaviors, and that is looking at the genes that um, make up each of these um, different animals. And what they've discovered is, much to their surprise, many animals that they had classified as being distantly, distantly related, for example, these two crabs, are in fact they're close, they're, uh, each other's closest relatives. So even though the, just looking at the bodies of these two animals might lead you to believe that there are in fact wild differences in the lineages of these two species, in fact the genetic analysis tells us that they are in fact close cousins. The reverse has also happened. Any taxonomist worth her salt would surely have classified these two lizards as members of the same species, but genetic analysis tells us that they're actually quite distantly related from, to each other. Why am I bringing this up in the context of brain imaging? In many ways, this is what, the, this is what brain imaging gives to those of us who are interested in understanding how the, mind, the, how the mind is organized. What it allows us to do is to take two behaviors or two cognitive phenomena, if you will, phenomena, if you will and understand by, look, by looking at the underlying physical substrates, that is the actual parts of the brain that give rise to these behaviors, we can say something about the degree to which the two are related to one another. The assumption is that if very different brain regions are involved in two seemingly similar behaviors, that's pretty good evidence that, in fact, they're, they're being generated by totally different kinds of processes, different kinds of mental recipes. Just like the, the geneticists would see totally different genetic markers and say that these are, in fact, animals that are distantly related. And the inverse is also true. If we see two things that humans can do um, that seem quite different from each other, but in fact, when we look at their brains, their brains are doing the exact same thing in those cases, that's pretty good evidence that, in fact, these two seemingly different behaviors are, in fact, quite closely related to one another. And so that's the kind of work that I want to just briefly sketch out for you today. So let me give you an example of how cognitive neuroscientists have used these assumptions to try to understand something about the relation between social cognition and other forms of thought. And I'm going to take as my case example the very well-known false belief test. This is a test originally developed um, for use in young children, and it goes like this. There are many versions of the test, but this is sort of the standard version. So a participant is introduced to two actors. This is um, Sally and Anne. For reasons that remain murky even to this day, Sally puts her ball in in a nearby basket and then decides to leave the room. Her nefarious friend Anne, unbeknownst to her, to to Sally, moves the ball into a new location, undisclosed location, um, in this case, a box. And what the participant is asked is something like, when Sally comes back, where will she first look for the ball? So most people in this room would say something like, 
uh, would probably reason at some level to yourself that, well, since Sally's ignorant of the fact that the ball has been relocated, she's bound to look in the place where she still believes it is. But what developmental psychologists observe is a very interesting uh, trajectory over the lifespan where most three-year-olds will say that she'll look for the, the place where the ball actually is. And it's not generally until around the fourth birthday that children can correctly tell you that Anne is likely uh, to, look, uh, to, to act on the, on the basis of her erroneous beliefs about the, the state of the world. Okay, some of the very first and most interesting insights about the relation of this kind of task to other sorts of things that we do came from work not in brain imaging, but from earlier work on autistic individuals. So these are data um, from Alan Leslie showing that uh, in this particular case, if you take typically developing children, um, in this case around their uh, fourth birthday, roughly 80% of this sample passed the false belief test. That is correctly said that, that Sally is likely to look in the location where the ball, uh, where she still believes the ball is. And what these researchers found was that if you take um, autistic individuals, the rates of giving the correct answer plummet. And in fact, what autistic individuals are most likely to do is to tell you that she's going to look in the place where the ball actually happens to be. Now, what makes this particularly interesting is that 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 particular pattern of behavior doesn't seem to be generated by the just global deficits in autistic individuals, many of whom are broadly developmentally delayed, because this study also had another group of participants, those with Down syndrome. Um, And uh, in this particular case, the IQ of those individuals was significantly lower than even that of the autistic individuals, and they're perfectly able to pass this task. That is, they're they're perfectly able to use what they understand about the mental states of this protagonist to say that she's likely to look where she thinks the ball actually is. Sometime after that, um, individuals developed a really wonderful control for this kind of task. Because as you notice, there's lots of stuff going on in that task. You have to pay attention to what's happening with the actors, and there's this funny change. Um, and so you want to be able to rule out the possibility that all of this happens. To, to, it's just some kind of incidental aspect of the task uh, as, as it was developed. So what researchers did was to um, create versions of, the, of, these, of these stories that didn't rely on understanding the mental states of other people, but where there was still some outdated representation uh, of, of the world. So as an example, imagine that I'm um, back home in Boston and I happen to have gone out uh, apple picking the other day. It's a beautiful fall thing to do. Um, and, I, and I snap a photograph of this, um, of this particularly lush looking apple. Now, as I turn to leave, a stiff wind comes and blows this apple off the, off the branch. The question that you can, you can ask an observer is when the photograph is developed or when somebody looks at the photograph on her, on her iPod, um, what is it that the photograph is going to show? Is it going to show the apple on the branch or off the branch? And of course, the correct answer in this case is the photograph is an inaccurate, erroneous, um, outdated representation of the physical world. And so it's bound to show the, the apple as it once was on the branch, not as the world actually is, which is the apple on the ground. And what's beautiful about this is that it's a wonderful logical control for the case that I just showed you with Sally and Anne. There is some change in the world out there, and there is an outdated representation of that world. In the Sally Ann case, that's, that's an outdated representation of, uh, that, that is the person's beliefs about how the world is or should be. In the case of the apple, it's something to do with uh, physical representation. There are many versions of these stories involving antiquated maps or outdated satellite images. You, you get the picture. 
So the first thing that, that, that researchers noticed was that there's a very interesting pattern of results when you run the same kinds of autistic individuals that fail on the false belief test. So these are other data showing on the left that autistic individuals fail at the false belief versions of this. But if you look on the right, where the, exactly the same logical structure is given to them, but they're no longer required to understand anything about the goings-on of another person's mind, autistic individuals do quite well and, in fact, many cases do better than normally developing individuals. I'm going through this with the false belief test because I think it's one of some of those beautiful data to emerge from the neuroimaging literature. So my colleague at MIT, Rebecca Sachs, has been um, looking at the brain basis of, um, of performance on both the false, false belief task and the false photograph task. And when you run individuals on both of those, when you scan their brains as they're performing both kinds of tasks, what you show very consistently is a, a, is a pattern of brain activity, which is a set of brain regions that, com that comprises the medial prefrontal cortex. So this is a part of your brain immediately behind your forehead in line with your nose, um, the posterior medial parietal cortex, so this is sort of under the, the crown of your head, and then regions of the temporal parietal junction, um, sort of right behind your temples, if you will. And what's beautiful about this is um, starting out today's um, symposium, Donald Pfaff said, uh, noted that um, there's actually incredible heterogeneity in the way that researchers talk about and study theory of mind. And I think there are bad sociological reasons why that's the case. But there's, there's also incredibly good scientific reasons for why that's the case. And that is that no matter how scientists have studied theory of mind, no matter how it is they asked subjects to make inferences about the mental states of other people, this is the same set of brain regions that we see as being more active in the social mental case than in the physical case. So you can ask subjects to do things like, you know, tell me how happy this per person on the left was to have his photograph taken. It doesn't matter. You will see this um, particular set of brain regions. You can ask questions about what would a historical figure like Christopher Columbus know about the technology in this room. You still see these same brain regions. You can ask questions not just about the mental states of other people, but about any entity that has mental states. You can ask questions about what dogs know or whether dogs, uh, what the personality characteristics of dogs are, and you will once again see these brain regions as being more active. And you can even do it with gym, displays that simply imply that there's an agent there. So for those of you who know the hydrant symbol display, um, if you just look at geometric shapes moving in such a way as, uh, as that, uh, su such to imply that there are people with goals, that's sufficient to trigger um, activity in these brain regions. So I like to think of this as um, among the probably half dozen most consistent effects to come out of brain imaging over the last 15 years. Um, and there are now many dozens of studies looking at comparisons between tasks that ask subjects to make inferences about the goings-on of another person's mind. And compared to almost any other um, control task, this is a, sweat, a suite of brain regions that is um, more, act more active. Now, in just the last few minutes that I have... Oh, so, so what does this say? So I think what this argues for um, is, the, is that, in fact, what we bring to the table in terms of our cognitive processes when we try to make sense of other people seems to look very different than the other kinds of general pur purpose, domain general sorts of processes that we might use in the rest of our everyday life. So making an inference about the unseen mental states of the person next to you doesn't seem to, to bear much in common with making inferences about other sorts of unseen entities. And other work that uh, we and others have, uh, have done, remembering stuff about the personality characteristics of other people doesn't seem to bear much in, in common with remembering other kinds of things out there um, in, in the world. Using what you know generally about how people operate, uh, sort of your sort of semantic knowledge about um, other people's characteristics, doesn't seem to have much in common with, using, with other sorts of semantic knowledge that you might have about the objects um, that you encounter. 
So let me just close by, by giving you one sort of interesting piece of data that I think is mainly speculative, but I think tells a sort of potentially very interesting part of the story. So keep in mind this particular image showing the three brain regions that I've um, been talking about. And then I'll show you this other um, image where you see the exact same brain regions. Now, what's interesting is this image was generated by researchers who had absolutely no interest, as far as I can tell, in social cognition. They were looking at totally different things. Um, in fact, they weren't even interested in what the brain was doing when you ask subjects to do something fun or complex or interesting. Instead, these researchers were simply interested in what the, brain, what the human brain looks like when it's allowed to sort of rest and relax into some state of baseline equilibrium. And what the researchers found is that if you measure metabolic activity, oxygen and glucose in various different brain regions, there's some brain regions that are very tonically hungry and others that are relatively quiet. And the regions that continue to sort of chug along, continue to sort of do whatever it is they normally do in everyday life when subjects are allowed to rest, turn out to be the same brain regions that are involved in understanding other, other minds. What does this mean? It means potentially that we have brain, that as a member of, a, of the human species, um, we come endowed, we come equipped with brains that are not agnostic about the kinds of information that we're getting um, out there in the world, but that instead seem primed or, or in some other way ready to process um, other, other people's mental states, ready or, and hungry to interact with uh, other people around us. So I'll leave you with that thought, and thank you very much. So let's uh, look at mirror neurons. So back in the 90s, my colleagues in Parma, in Italy, uh, were studying an area in the front of the monkey brain. You can see it called F5. And uh, what we see at bottom right is that when the monkey was, in this case, carrying out a precision pinch to pick up a piece of food, this particular cell they were recording from fired vigorously. So we're seeing... 10 different occasions on which the cell fires vigorously, and the histogram says this is a cell that really cares about the monkey doing a precision pinch. And then almost by chance, one day um, when the experimenter was placing a piece of food on the tray before handing it to the monkey, uh, they realized this cell was firing in this case as well. So a mirror neuron is one that is active for the monkey executing a specific range of grasps, and also for observing someone else carrying out a somewhat similar range of grasps. And I just want to make a technical point. There are other neurons, for example, canonical neurons, that fire when the monkey is doing the action, but not when he sees the action. So it's an important observation from the monkey where we can look cell by cell to say, in the mirror system, there are lots and lots of cells that aren't mirror neurons. Now, he, here from the same uh, group uh, with other colleagues is a study not on action but on an emotion, in this case, disgust. And so the two experimental conditions now, we're in uh, Sarah Jane's realm of uh, fMRI, brain imaging with humans. And uh, in one case, and this is the red spots that you can see distributed on the brain, uh, the, the subject is asked to smell something disgusting. And in the other case, the person is asked to look at someone experiencing something disgusting. And those are the um, blue dots. And then the white dots are where we have overlap. So I want to make two points. One is you might say there is a mirror system. We're not able to talk about individual neurons, but a mirror system for disgust. 
But lots of neurons are active for the observation, lots of neurons are active for the execution in addition to this overlap. So I think that's an important caveat to bear in mind. And now in this particular study from uh, Buccino and colleagues at Parma and Milan, uh, on the left we have the uh, human subject who's being imaged is watching a little video. So here we see some samples, uh, watching a dog biting, watching a monkey biting, watching a human biting. And as you can see from those blue circles I've distributed down the right-hand brains on the left-hand side, that mirror neuron system, as they call it, is pretty much active in each case. On the other hand, actually it was the other mouth, um, when they turn to communicative actions, a person talking, uh, but you didn't hear, a vi- didn't hear a soundtrack, just seeing their uh, lip reading, as it were, a monkey teeth chattering and so on, a dog barking. In this case, as we see with the circled area, the mirror system that was active for speech and was a little bit active for the monkey didn't react to the dog. So Buccino and his colleagues said, well, actions belonging to the observer's motor repertoire are mapped on the observer's motor system. But of course, we recognize what the dog is doing. And as we we heard from Dr. Kaminsky, um, for many of us, social interactions with dogs are at least as important as social interactions with humans. So that restricting everything to mirror neurons, which overlap between our own actions and our observations, is too limited a perspective. And uh, thus my slogan, uh, mirror neurons and more. Now, Galesi, Kaisers, and Rizzolatti, co-authors of the previous studies, uh, felt that mirror neurons were the secret for what they call social cognition. Let's just read a short quote. We posit that mirror mechanisms allow us to directly understand the meaning of the actions and emotions of others by internally replicating, simulating them, in other words, without any conceptual reasoning. And another phrase for this view is putting oneself in the other's shoes. So let's do um, a scientific study together, shall we? So um, before I show you this test of your mirror neuron system, I just want to make a distinction. Um, Most of the talks we've heard, but not all of them, have approached theory of mind in terms of can you attribute mental states to the other? What are their beliefs? What are their intentions? But I want to stress that we didn't evolve to passively sit around judging other people's intentions. We evolved to interact with other people. And so I will use social cognition as the umbrella term with theory of mind just part of it, but so we not only recognize what others are doing, but do so in a way that can help guide our own actions. So to test the mirror neuron account of social cognition, I want you to treat the next slide. There are going to be three frames. I want you to treat it as a video and just read the frames from top to bottom and see how you feel. So when you got to the bottom, did you feel a little twinge of smile or a little empathy? How many of you felt empathetic in looking at Okay, so we have a few, around about a third of you believe in the mirror, the mirror theory of... <laughs> of, of um. Okay, now for my next number, um, I'm going to see, hopefully I can get even less of you to agree with the mirror theory. Um, I want you to imagine that you have spent the whole day preparing an absolutely superb dinner. 
and at last you sit down across the table as you present your guest with the food, expecting a reaction of delight, and this is what you see. (laughs) Now, it's interesting. You, like my wife, responded with laughter to this. However, I would suggest that had it been the real situation in which your guest had reacted like this, you would not have laughed. Uh, You would have thought, what a bastard, or (laughs) what an uneducated oaf who doesn't appreciate fine cuisine. So, So the point is that you had to recognize in some subconscious way the expression of disgust. But in no way did you put yourself in that person's shoes. If anything, you wanted to knock them out of their shoes at, at that moment. So uh, Mark Genero, a colleague of mine who died recently, uh, gave us some insight by saying, let's break away from just recognizing the other to thinking about social interactions. And, and, and so this is a fairly complicated diagram. But the idea is that as you observe the other, you'll come up with some idea of their action or their intentions. And then as you begin to plan, and again, it might not be conscious, but as you begin to plan your response, you're already weighing the social consequences in terms of your own beliefs and desires. So in this case, we saw that the effort you'd put into preparing the, um, the dinner and your expectation of delight caused you to respond in a very different way from the sympathy you might have felt if that person was reacting to, to something in another context. So the point Mark makes is that each agent's brain builds a representation both of her own intended actions and the potential actions of the other agent with whom he interacts. And without getting into the technicalities of this, there's an interesting point that is often overlooked by talking, people talking about mirror neurons because if you're using the same neurons to code the other person's actions and your own actions, how do you know what you're thinking versus what they're doing? So it's what's called the binding problem, knowing what goes with with which agent. But anyway, the crucial point is that you're continually making predictions and estimates about the social consequences. And so if those predictions are defied, then you'll react in a very different way from otherwise. Okay, in the remaining time... I want to get into this anthropogeny gig and look at uh, evolution. And the, the question then is to use our, um, leaving aside the dolphins and the elephants for the moment, um, we have two main comparison points highlighted here, the macaque monkey with our common ancestor 25 million years ago and the chimpanzee with our last common ancestor five to seven million years ago. Well, We've already learned about chimpanzees, so let's get back to the monkeys. So first, I just want to briefly mention a study of baboons in Botswana. There's a limerick there. There's a competition. I want, you know, after this, there was a baboon in Botswana who blah, 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 who fell in love with a banana. But anyway, the other three lines, they're up to you. Okay. So anyway, here we see... Here we see Dorothy Cheney and Robert Seyfarth in Botswana with the bonobos they've been studying. And I, I think one of the things that's very clear from these pictures is there's a lot of social interaction going on that lies outside the scope of their studies. And um, the, the one study I have time to show you is this idea of contact barks that the... Uh, I wish I had Tetsuro's 
ability to, to create the sounds of the, the subject. So instead, I will take a moment to give you the sound of this computer. Okay, continuing. <laughs> All right, so they make these contact marks as they move through the trees if they're isolated. Now, the interesting thing they studied was that um, what if they play back a contact bark? When, when will the, uh, an adult female respond? Or when will not any baboon respond? And it said if they were locomoting rather than sitting feeding, if they were far away from the others, or if they were at the rear of the troop, they were much more attentive to, to this contact bark. So the suggestion is this was based on the animal state, not its recognition of the state of others. And the test they, they made of this was they um, looked at mothers in relation to an infant getting separated, and there was no special increase in a mother's emission of the contact box if she saw that her own infant was in need. And they compared this to saying it's as if a human said, I'm okay, so everyone else must be okay too. So their point then is that baboon contact barks, at least, don't have anything to do with theory of mind in this sense of seeing the other's belief state or mental state as different from one's own. So the last study I want to bring to your attention, because it not only looks at macaque monkeys, uh, the same sort of monkeys that gave us the original mirror neurons, uh, but also... Um, gives us, in fact, more neurophysiological data from Riken Brain Science Institute in uh, just outside Tokyo with uh, Iriki and Fuji. And the, the background for this is that Iriki's group had taught these monkeys how to use a rake to retrieve food, which was not otherwise in their reach. And what is interesting here is that they found a cell in the parietal cortex responsive to touch to the inside of the hand. And they found this cell was also responsive to visual stimuli, and it was responsive to these visual stimuli just within the hand, in other words, where there might be an object that was either just about to be or was being touched. But once the monkey had been taught to use the tool, then this whole raking area became part of the visual field that was relevant to activating this uh, hand-sensitive cell. And similarly... If we looked at a cell whose somatosensory field, whose touch field was the shoulder girdle, then the, without tool use, there was what was within reach of the hand by itself, but this was extended. So there's this interesting thing that the brain is actually changing, in this case not on a social context, but on a, a, a practical context in terms of what can tools allow me to do, what part of the world becomes within my reach. So with this, they turned to this interesting situation where they had two monkeys uh, positioned at a table. And what you find is that when you put two monkeys together and there's food within reach of both of them, very quickly one establishes itself as dominant and will always get to take the food if it's in their common area. So we see three cases here. Position A, the reaching areas are disjoint. So M2, in this case the submissive monkey, can grab food whenever it's placed within his reach. But if we now move them into this position where this is the region both can reach, then there's only this very small probability shown by this sliver here of reaching, a very small probability of reaching by the, the subordinate monkey in the shared area. And just a little bit more when it's in the reach of the monkey's right hand, obviously a right-handed monkey. 
And then what they found was that there were state-dependent neurons in the, frontal in the prefrontal cortex, a lot more data that we are not going to go into. But here you can see that M1 is differentially coding position A from B and C, and we get a different coding here with a neuron in M2 so that they're aware of these regions that are socially different depending on their relative standing at the table. But here's the real surprise, and I got to meet the monkeys doing this in, uh, in Riken. Now, these monkeys had previously been trained on how to use a rake. So you give them all a rake, and now here's this area where both can reach, which they couldn't reach before with their bare hands. And the subordinate monkey competes. His, his notion of dominance does not extend to using a rake. He's got it for, hey, I can't go where his hand can go, but hey, that's not where his hand's going, so it's okay. So um, Iriki and, and Fuji comment, this seems strange to us humans, but it's understandable if we think that monkeys lack the ability to imagine the environment from another's point of view. That links back to Sarah Jane's uh, director task. And so what they're saying, in this case, Tullius created an ethologically novel condition of social conflict that the monkey's adaptive neural system was ill-equipped to deal with. So, of course, by this stage, you may be saying, well, you've showed conclusively that baboons and macaque monkeys don't really have theory of mind, so why even mention them? And, and so I close with uh, a claim and that is that if we look at the comparison between the fine details of neural recording, as we saw uh, for the macaque, shown here at bottom left, if we look at the rather crude information about here are a few chunks of brain that are getting active, but we haven't a clue about what individual neurons are doing that we have with the human, and if we have these various evolutionary relationships, then the claim with which I leave you, and I hope to have given you some feeling for it, is that if we study mirror neurons and more, those larger circuits in the monkey, then that will lead us to a deeper understanding of what's going on in our own brains and with our capacity for social cognition. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.